are so thankful. It's really awesome to be able to see the seasons of life, isn't it, as we graduate. And for some of us, it is hard to remember that high school graduation many, many, many years ago as we celebrate those reunions. But it's such a mile marker and such a beginning in these graduates' life of, of what is to come. And we pray that being here, not only inside of this space every single week as a, as a student, inside of Firehouse Ministry, inside of growing up inside of Kidstown, we just pray that this would be a place that the the heart of growth would be the God's word, that we would love it, that we would cherish it, because in it is life. Amen? In it is life. I want to invite you, speaking of God's word, I want to invite you to take God's word and turn to Mark chapter 3. Inside of this book of Mark, um, we are, as we continue just to go verse by verse, Mark is a really unique book that I'm coming more and more to love, Um, but I'm also learning how to approach the book of Mark. The book of Mark is not one that we can approach verse by verse in the sense that we just keep moving forward. The most is gained in the book of Mark by seeing its layers, So as you approach a new passage, to layer it, what was before it, what's coming after it. Because at that 20,000-foot view is where we get to see the beauty of the book of Mark. And so that's what we're going to do this week. Um, Last week we did verses um, 1 through 6, but I'm going to read those again. And then we will be digging into the following verses so that um, we can get some context and see that big picture. So if you'll... Join with me on verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. This is following, this is the fifth of five stories that we've just come through in Mark chapter 2. Each story involves a conflict with the religious leaders. And they, the religious leaders, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill it? But they were silent. And they looked around at them with ang- and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomiah and from beyond the Jordan and from around Turos and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready to him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, but so that all that had disease pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. When we read these verses, you're probably like me, and it just becomes compartments of reading. Instead of what is really happening, can you see and understand that there literally is an earthquake feel that's happening and it's coming from Galilee and the epicenter of that earthquake is Jesus himself. It is happening with Jesus at the center of something that is stirring the entire land and I mean all of Israel. 
The religious leaders, they're threatened. The crowds, they're desperate. And the unclean spirits that are in people are trembling. At every turn, Jesus is revealing and proving his authority that no one had ever seen before. Jesus taught. He taught with a qualitative authority that their ears had never been able to listen to before. He healed with an authority over every single affliction, even that of leprosy. He commanded even the unclean spirits, and guess what they did? They obeyed. Mark helps us to understand how far and how wide this impact of Jesus, this fame of Jesus, had spread in such a short amount of time. And this was done without tweets, without Facebook, without social media. It was simply his word and his work that spread throughout the land. And just so you have a frame of reference... The area of Galilee would have had about 400,000 people. That's just Galilee. So when we read words like crowd, I think we think of this. And this is a big crowd, right? But it wasn't hundreds of people. It was an ever-growing thousands of people that were gathering together. And that was without them having a stadium that they rented, right? It's one man literally changing the world, and everyone is coming to him. Mark 3, verses 7 to 8 says this, Jesus withdrew. Does that make sense now? Everything is escalating. He withdrew not out of fear. He never did anything out of fear but with purpose. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyros and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They heard, they came. I want you to look at a map, because it's going to help us to understand just a little bit more. And as the map comes up, you're going to see in the very bottom part that Edomiah is about 120 miles due south of Galilee itself. It is made up of a mixture of not just Jew, but also Gentile as well. Then you get into that Judea and that Jerusalem area. Obviously, that is just heavily concentrated, not only with Jewish people, but the center of religion is there. To the east of the Jordan River is this area in green called Perea. And they are coming from there as well, which also held a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And then you see the red dot, and that signifies um, the Sea of Galilee itself. And then to the northwest, you see Sidon and um, Tyros. And so inside of those coastal cities, that territory is going to have a primary um, audience and um, population of Gentiles. So can you see that already Jesus is starting to affect not simply the Jewish people, but even beyond So that in the book of Acts, when it goes to the Gentile, Jesus is the one who has started that conversation. Jesus is the epicenter of life 
changing. Starting next week, starting next week, we'll go into a new section, and that section just starts right off the bat with Jesus choosing the 12 disciples, and we start to watch how they followed Jesus. But before we go to that section, it's really important that we also learn from other groups of people that follow Jesus, like the religious leaders, these crowds, and even the people that held unclean spirits within them. Because they followed Jesus too, right? They just did so imperfectly and with a deficiency. But we can learn from that, right? I, the things that I've learned most in my life has come from people who did it wrong, how many times in your life have you followed somebody inside of your, either your place or sometimes even your home and say, I'm not going to do it that way. I've learned from their mistakes, right? You're looking at someone who has learned from a lot of people's mistakes. Now, this is the humbling part. All y'all get to learn from mine. You know, there's the humbling part of that. But we don't need to avoid that. We need to embrace that. And so we're going to do that. We're going to look at these three groups of people this morning as we do an overlook for how we have gotten to where we are. So let's look at how the religious leaders followed Jesus. Mark 3, 6 says this, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They were following Jesus, but they were following Jesus to do what to him? To destroy him, not to believe him. The religious leaders help us and they give us our first warning and something to be careful about of our own hearts as we desire to follow Jesus. And here's the belief statement for you related to them. Self-righteousness follows Jesus with predetermined conclusions. Self-righteousness follows Jesus with predetermined conclusions. We find in that, chap- that second chapter of of Mark, their progression. And there, there are an important five scenes of conflict that they are a central character. They're a main character. They're kind of in the background that then they come more and more to the forefront, but they are there. And they are there, and their concern is not a small one. When we read Pharisee and, and um, scribe, we just kind of think of local Pharisee and scribe, but that is really not what's happening here. Testimony has reached Jerusalem. There's this thing called the Sanhedrin. Think of the Sanhedrin as like our Supreme Court, except it's the religious Supreme Court, made up of 70 of the religious leaders of the day, plus one, the high priest. And they had the responsibility of this kind of a moment where one is doing something that is miraculous and and fulfilling what seems to be the Messiah, it was their role to say, is this the Messiah or is it a blasphemer? That's a good question, right? So they've got a good question that they're asking, but they're leaving Jerusalem not with simply a good question. This is where the mistake happens. They left Jerusalem with the answer already concluded in their heart and their mind. They left Jerusalem saying he's... A blasphemer. So you watch their progression of of observing. Then you watch their progression of interrogating Jesus. And then you watch their conclusion of we must destroy him. This really hit me hard, actually. 
It would be easy to look at the Pharisees and say, wow, I'm glad I'm not them. And immediately when I do that, I am them. Because I have a heart so potent, with that potential. How many times do I ask a right question with only one answer that Jesus can give? My answer. How many times do I come before him thinking I'm putting a question mark at the end, but I'm really just doing an exclamation point? So I confess to you this morning, how quickly I can become the Pharisee. And when I look at them, I see things in them that I easily can understand it as a part of my life as well because I know these moments all too true. Because self-righteousness, it refuses to hear the truth. Self-righteousness is blind to the person of truth. Self-righteousness says this, I know all things. I am above all things. I am my own righteousness. When we're following Jesus with questions, we don't ask questions with pride or self-righteousness. How do we ask questions? In humility. So humility says this. Humility says, Lord, I don't know but you do. Humility says your name is above every other name. Lord Jesus, you are my life and you are my righteousness. So before we leave these Pharisees and scribes, I ask you, what questions are you asking the Lord? Take that question seriously for yourself. What are you asking him? I bet it's probably, if you're like me, it doesn't take long to figure out what that question is because you probably have already asked it a hundred times. What is that question? Now I ask you, how are you asking that question? Are you asking it in a place of humility that when you ask, then your lips close And your ears open and you say, Lord, whatever you say is what I want to hear. Or do you keep pounding him with how he has to answer that question? And you're holding so tightly to that answer that the only way that he could prove that he's Jesus is that he would answer it like you want him to answer it. I would invite you today to open that hand up. And instead of it being a fist and a pointer to him, that it would be an open hand of worship to him, trusting that he knows all things, believing that his name is above every single name ever spoken, and that he is your righteousness, not yourself. So as we move from the religious Leaders, we move now to this other group called the crowds that we now understand are not just one, ten, or a hundred, but thousands upon thousands and only growing all the more. Verse 9 says in Mark 3, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed how many? Many. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. 
So here's the one thing that is my belief statement that I want to be careful of in my own life. Distorted understanding presses upon Jesus with flawed expectations. I know these words are long and it's hard to write all that down. All right. Notes will be online if you want to take a break at any point. All right. Distorted understanding presses upon Jesus with flawed expectations. Here's the reality that that group of people represented. Some followed only a medicine man and not a savior. Some followed only a good teacher and not the eternal word. Some followed only the desire for an earthly autocrat and not a suffering servant. But before I become the Pharisee, I want to pause. I want to pause because I don't want to describe these massive crowds of people in a wrong way. Many experience tormenting afflictions and disabilities in their lives. They're not coming as whole. They're coming as broken people. They are desperate for relief. And the thought of being healed by this man became a newfound hope that they are going to accomplish at any point to be able to get and to touch him. Jesus met these hurting people. He didn't run away from them. And he did so not with judgment, not with being tired of them, but instead an ever-increasing compassion, the fullness of mercy, the extension of grace. Because this is what we know about Jesus. Is this what you know about Jesus? That where he's present, he changes things. He transforms things. He resurrects things. I love this about Jesus. He does not stand as an observer. He enters every corner, every closet of our lives. Why does he do that? To redeem us. To redeem us for his glory and for our good. His compassion and his love It never changes. That is who Jesus is. So he healed these people, these suffering people. He healed them. They are not like, unlike that woman with the issue of blood that was in the crowds and desperately just wanted to touch what part? The hem of his garment. Because in her heart, she knew that if she could just touch him, that she would be healed. But with that said, we are like the crowds. We see a little and we think we understand a lot. What first began with these crowds, with this this amazement of hearing a teaching Hearing God's words spoken in such a way that they have never heard with such authority, all of a sudden they start to quickly become astonished by seeing the miracles. Faith comes how? From hearing Jesus, not seeing miracles. 
And when we move away from hearing our shepherd's voice, we are in danger of distorting who Jesus is. And why do we distort it? Because we want him to fit who we want him to be. We want him to fit our desired outcomes. So in our flawed expectations, we begin to seek Jesus for what he can do for me instead of who he is eternally. So here's the real question for you this morning. Which Jesus are you following? And what I mean by that, are you following a Jesus of your own invention? Are, are you, have you taken pieces and parts of God's word and you've pieced them together in such a way that you go, that's the Jesus I want to follow? Or are you taking Jesus for the fullness of who he says he is and you say, I follow you? This is what I know. That the fool will follow in faith their created versions of Jesus. They will follow the medicine man, the mere teacher of lessons, and the fixer of undesired circumstances in their life. And they will develop unholy expectations that will end the same way every time. Deeply disappointed in Jesus, empty inside, and even angry at him. But the wise man and woman places their faith in Jesus, who is the only Son of God. And in their heart will rise holy expectations that every single time will give an eternal satisfaction, peace, and joy. Which Jesus are you following? And if that wasn't enough... There's one more group of people this morning. Our passage this morning ends with another group of people being impacted by the presence of Jesus. We see unclean spirits in this passage and we immediately think of demons and we do so rightly. But I think what we quickly forget is those demons are in people. Jesus loves people. And those demons are in People And these people are coming from all of those areas from that map that you saw. Some traveling over 120 miles to get to Jesus. We, we spent some time in our connection class going, why? Why would a demon want to travel 120 miles to get to Jesus? And there's a couple of reasons we'll talk about. With some of them, but I think some of them, and I love what the class was saying. Remember the friends that let down the man from the roof? There might have been friends that brought their friend, parents that brought their son and their daughter to the one who could heal. We'll talk about some other reasons in just a second, but Mark 3 11 and 12 says this And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him, they cried out, You are the son of God. That word cried out is not in a way of worship. It is a way of shouting. Like just screaming, cried out. You are the son of God. And he strictly, Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known. 
Now, I'm going to go a little Greek on you here, okay? Can we go Greek for just a second? Yeah. All right. We're going Greek. All right. The Greek verbs that you see that are bolded, every single one of them are this. And I know this won't mean anything to you maybe, but I'll tell you what it means because it matters. All of them are imperfect, active, indicative. Say that with me. Imperfect, active, indicative. Just go down the street and go, that looks... I feel like I just did a perfect, imperfect, active, indicative verb. You know, you just impress your friends with that. But what that means and why it's important is this. That particular kind of verb means that these demonic confrontations that are happening against Jesus is not occurring just once. When we read God's word, we just read it in compartments. It's not just occurring once. It means it's imperfect. It's never completing itself. That means it's always happening. It's happening repetitively and repeatedly. I want to take you back to right after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. In the very first part of Mark, what is the very next thing that happens after God the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? What's the next thing that happens? He goes to the wilderness for how many days? Forty days. And who is there? Satan. That's right. Satan is there and he is tempting him. And I love how the word tells us in every way. Forty days. What is is Satan's lead line? Like his lead every time he's tempting. What's his lead line? If you are the son of God, then... If you are the son of God, then... How did that 40 days end for Satan? It didn't quite work for him, did it? It didn't quite work. So inside of that, that not quite working, he did not say, well, you know what? You are stronger than me. I'm just going to give up. And he also didn't say, you know what? We're going to wait for the cross. That's what we're going to wait for. No. He is always at work. Jesus is always at work. And the enemy is always at work. So I see a commonality that's happening inside of this as well. Because then his demons, his minions, his army are enacted. And they are trying to undermine, to expose, to bring down the authority of Jesus at every chance possible. And with every demonic attack that is coming against Jesus... What does he prove time and time again? His authority. His authority is greater. And it's not just that his authority is greater over that demon. His love is greater. Because he is releasing that person. They are now free from that which had held them bondage and captive. I believe two things are happening, at least two things. There's many more, and God's word doesn't give us every detail. But as I've studied it, this is just kind of where I'm landing. I believe two things are happening in this repeated confrontation. The religious leaders, they're trying to destroy the man, right? Destroy him. Satan and his army are trying to destroy salvation's plan. They know they can't destroy him. But they're trying to destroy the plan. And number two is this, that they approach approach Jesus ready to battle. 120 miles, no matter how they got there, there has to be this stirring in them that what does pride think it can do? Anything, 
right? Pride thinks it deserves everything and can do anything. But when that unclean spirit stands before the Holy Spirit within the Son of God, every time this is what happens. The eyes of that spirit fully comprehends who is before them. The knees buckle and fall down to the ground before he who is superior. Their words that are filled with lies, that are filled, that have created a foaming of the mouth of the, its inhabitants, of just controlling speech, and the only thing that can come out of that, the author of lies, is lies itself. But in this moment, they speak what is true, and they declare what is true, and that is, you are the Son of God. Maybe you'll hear Philippians 2, 9-11 through 11, a little differently. I know I do. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, say it with me, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These words of confession, you are the son of God, is the only right response that happens when you're standing before him, right? Right? Right. And when we encounter Jesus, we either say that out of one or two means. One is out of love. One is out of fear. Mark, the author of this, this gospel, Mark's love starts the gospel with this declaration. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, verse 1. God the Father's love said it at his baptism. Peter answered in love and with confession to Jesus' incredible question, Who do you say that I am? The centurion's love confessed, newfound love, confessed it with full conviction at the foot of the cross. Yet these demons, they say the same thing. You are the son of God. So my takeaway is that it's not a matter of simply believing. For even the demons believe, right? Both followers and enemies of Christ believe. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord, right? All right, every tongue But what is the difference? The difference maker is love. And when you think of love, don't think of love like the songs that this world has created. Think of love as he first loved us. Think of love like the greatest commandment is that you were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Think of love as there is no greater love than this. That Christ would give his life for you and for me. If it's not love that's energizing this declaration and confession that Jesus, you are the son of God, then it can only come from another place, one other place, and that is fear. 
And this is the truth. Jesus is and forever will be the Son of God. And every man, every woman, every child, every tongue, every knee will confess that. And it will either be in relationship with him or in relationship against him. And in that moment, love will prove itself glorious. And in that moment, the enemy who fear is filled with fear, it will prove itself disastrous. So I want to ask you to do something that we don't normally do. I want to ask you to stand your feet enthusiastically. I would ask you to do that again, but some, you only got one stand in you today. I understand that. Confession is a really important thing, right? Jesus didn't save you to keep it silent inside of you. But it would be a confession of our heart. I want us to read Colossians 1, 15 through 18 as a confession of our heart of love, that we believe and that we love him. Therefore, we proclaim to him. Would you read with me enthusiastically? Jesus, you are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by you, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through you and for you. You are before all things, and in you all things hold together. You are the head of the body, the church. Jesus, you are the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything you might be preeminent. Amen? Amen. Amen. For those that think the sermon is over, you are sadly wrong. You may be seated. <laughs> Two principles. To believe, and, to believe and love the Son of God is to fall down before Him in worship. But to believe... And be an enemy of the Son of God is to fall down before him in a fear that will be a pathway to hell itself. From these people with unclean spirits, we learn this. That believing without love falls down before Jesus with fear-filled confession. I know today's been heavy, so I want to give you a story. When I, was, when I was young and I was learning to ride a bike, my dad was very proud at the proficiency in which I was riding a bike. So we went to my aunt and my uncle's home, and he wanted to show off how he had taught me to ride a bike. So I go to my aunt and uncle's home. Now, if we were to go there right now, it would not look like this. But in the whatever age I was, let's say I was four, a very advanced bike rider. It, it wasn't four, but... Whatever age I was, this is what it looked like to me, is that they lived on top of this monstrous hill, all right? 
it was not a monstrous hill. It had to be maybe a speed bump of a hill, all right? But to me, on a bicycle, new, a new rider, it looked like a monstrous hill. My dad has me at the top of the hill, and I'm about to go down. And his famous last words to me was, Carrie, do you see that tree down there? I still so clear this so ingrained this moment is so ingrained in my life do you see that tree down there don't hit that <laughs> let's say it together carrie hit the tree it was the listen it was the only thing i could see i mean i there was lots of other things lots of other road lot, but the only thing i could see and i still can hear my voice in my head saying, just don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree. It was the only thing I could see. Everything else disappeared. And I just plowed right in to that tree. Now, I say that because I don't want you to hear me say, and I don't want you to leave this morning hearing me say, don't hit the tree. <laughs> Those three trees called self-righteousness, distorted understanding and believing without love. I needed to be aware that the tree was there. I just didn't need to focus on the tree. So you need to be aware of your potential for self-righteousness, distorted understanding, and believing without love. You need to be aware of that. But don't let the tree be the only thing that you see because it's just a part of the landscape. Because we can't follow him with those predetermined conclusions, flawed expectations, and spout off useless confessions. That's not a part of following Jesus. But this morning, I want you to look at only one thing, and it's not the tree. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the only way that we learn to follow him, that's the name of the series, is follow. It, Inside of that, that series, it's like, which Jesus are we following? We, we cover that. And if there's only one, and there's only one that can teach us how to follow, and that's Jesus himself. He leads and we follow. We follow in obedience and surrender and fellowship. We deny ourselves. We take up the cross. But we are not doing that independently. We are following Jesus. So here is the main belief statement I want you to leave this place with today. Faith follows Jesus as the great I am. Who is Jesus? He is I am. He is I am. And he is I am to you. And if he is I am, that means you're not. We're the follower. He's the leader. We're the student. He's the teacher. We're the sheep. He's the shepherd. We're the clay. He's the potter. And I would love to leave you even with something just very practical that you can even in your time of study this coming week. Jesus tells us who he is 
over and over again and throughout God's word. He didn't come and was silent. No, he came. He's the living word. He spoke. And in the book of John, it has seven I am statements that are just beautiful. They're just beautiful. And do we explore each one of them? Not as a Pharisee, not as a part of a mass mob crowd, and definitely not as one that is an enemy of his, but instead of a follower, that you would take each of these seven, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and life, I am the way and the truth and the life, I am the vine and you, we are the branches. Take those this week, maybe one per day, and discover who he is, because that is who you are to follow, is who he is. And as we end this morning, there might be some in this place. You realize for the first time that you're his enemy instead of being the one who loves him. And the great thing about Jesus is he loves you. You may hate him. You may have come in this door not liking him one bit. But he loves you. And I would ask, could this be a day that you say yes to him? Instead of trying to tread your own way through this life, that you find the peace and the joy and the satisfaction of following your Savior. Following the one who loves you more than you can ever even dream and who will never fail you. At the end of the service today, our pastors will be down front and our prayer partners will be down front and there would be no greater joy that we would have than to have that conversation with you. We invite you to be able to do that. But for right now, would you just stand to your feet? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for giving us time that we can dig into your word. And Lord, I pray that your word would dig into us. I pray, Lord, as we come before you, Lord, that it would be with an expectation that is holy because it is built off of who you are. Lord, as we even worship inside of this moment, I pray that our hearts would be freed, freed to see you clearly, that we can respond to you, that our our declaration of you being the Son of God would come from a passion of our heart to know you more and more and more. Thank you that you are the one who wants to be known. Lord, in this place, we lift our hands, we lift our voice, and we bow our knee before the only one worthy of such praise.